Hello, everyone. Welcome to I Hope I Can Make It Through, a Degrassi viewing podcast. I'm Donnie, your bright-eyed, for once, veteran. I'm Frank, your neophyte, but I've read books before. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a veteran on this one. (laughs) Um, So today, we're actually going to take one more day off before we jump into season two um and what we decided to do was we wanted to read thank you um i just got past so fun fun recording fact i spend a lot of these episodes holding a like zoom zoom knockoff lapras and it is very important to me and frank just passed her (laughs) along to me and i'm very appreciative um thank you frank no problems (laughs) anyway um so what we decided to do, we decided to take another episode off before we jump into season two, which we will definitely be getting to next week, um, to read something that's Degrassi adjacent. So what we decided to do is we decided to read a book. It's called Dear George Clooney, Please Marry My Mom. And I'm sure you're wondering, why the heck are you reading something like this? How is this Degrassi adjacent? Well, it is written by our Lord and Savior, Susan Nielsen, who has been saving our, our asses throughout season one and making us less miserable. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so this is a, for, the, for those of you who are curious about this book, obviously if you want to read it, um, you may want to sit this one out because we are going to go really into a lot of things that may be considered spoilery. Um, it is a middle grade book, um, which I did want to give a disclaimer. I read a lot of YA, but I don't read a lot of middle grade. So some of my issues with the book might be me just not reading enough middle grade to understand how middle grade is written because if this book made me realize that even like you like much like middle school versus high school like you would think oh it's only like a year or two difference but no it's a lot different <laughs> like how violet who is our main character handles situations is drastically different from any of your high school ya protags yeah um it's much more mischievous than yes. a young adult novel. Like, it's obviously much more mature the way she handles things. Um, yeah. Uh, should I do my normal summary? Yeah, let's do it. So, Violet um, is the uh, child of divorce. Her father uh, is a director in Hollywood. He um, was cheating on, on Violet's mom with an actress named Jenica. And, um, uh, but now Violet, uh, she has a, Violet's mom has a new boyfriend that Dudley, or excuse me, that Violet does not think is good enough for her mom, so she decides to get her mom the best man ever, George Clooney. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of the short of it, really. Um, it's interesting, because when I was reading this, I felt myself trying to find Degrassi parallels in it. And I feel like a lot of it is just because I think this book, while I have my gripes with it, and I don't know if you have the same gripes, we didn't pre-talk about this book at all, so we really don't know what the other person thinks of it. In spite of my gripes of this, I feel like the strengths of this book are very reminiscent of what I find the strengths to be of her Degrassi episodes. Yeah. I think that the moments that this book really shines connect back to what I think makes her the the episodes that she writes on shine which kind of gives me a better grasp and a better read on 
what her contributions are in those episodes that she had written um, because there are very interesting and complex takes on certain subjects um, and very interesting looks at emotional interiors that you don't always get to see not just in a middle grade book but just in books in general like there's very interesting ways that she addresses the emotional turmoil associated with divorce, um, the trauma of having your family get changed in such a drastic way, and in the case of this story also the fact that the father leaves and proceeds to have twins and have an, like you know have a relationship with another woman. Yeah um and also, just like you, I'm, I'm sorry. I was like looking through it because there's this one boy that I really wanted to. Because I was like, that's Sean. Yes. Like, yes. There's one boy. I was like, holy shit, Sean. Um, but yeah, um, I like. I just the the the, the perils I saw is also just like. And also, I saw flavors of Ashley yes. and Violet. Yes, I agree. Because, like, she's just like, oh, my parents, like, I can fix things for my parents. And, like, or, like, maybe things will change and, like, I'll have a family or so again. She has this similar conflict, Violet, that Ashley does, which is, like, this sense of, like, I know my father did wrong. But I still believe my father can come back and we can kind of fix this. Like, it's like that weird in-between. Not really weird. I think it's very natural in-between that you may have when your parent has done something wrong. Where it's like, I acknowledge my, my parent is kind of a piece of shit. But if my parent came back with, in this case, like, he, he came back with his tail between his legs. And I would want everything to go back to normal. Yeah. Which is a balance and an issue that we see happen with our characters in Degrassi when they are addressing the fact that their parents are divorced and we see this again in Violet, um, which I think also speaks to this is a very real emotion that a lot of kids that are watching their families go through divorce want, this weird balance, especially when there's somebody who is in the wrong. In this case, Violet's father is in the wrong. Yeah. Regardless of his, like, you know, how... Whether or not his relationship with Jenica is good or bad, what he does is super scummy. Yeah, like, there's no, there's no coming back. Um, and actually, like, my mom has a saying. I'm not sure if she came up with it, but I've always just credited it to my mom. When the man marries the mistress, all he does is create a job opening. Oof. <laughs> my mom don't play. Oof. <laughs> I, I I had a friend who was like trying to date a married dude, and I had and I told her that numerous times. I was like, he cheated once, he'll cheat again. Like, so, um, and that we do see like a parallel that like in this. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, should we just go, just run through this? Run through this puppy. Yeah, um... We'll try our best. Well, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward book. It really is. It's it's interesting because there's an aspect of it that's very straightforward, but if you actually line it up as a timeline, it gets very convoluted. Like, I was trying to write it out to, like, prepare for this. And the thing about this is, is if I read this book before I knew about Susan Nielsen as the Degrassi writer... 
I feel like I would get a feeling that this writer has written for TV. Yeah. Because there's this thing about this story where Violet is telling the story. It's in first person. And as she's telling the story, she bebops back and forth and there's a lot of flashing back and things like that. And like, oh, I should probably mention this. And then spends like half a chapter kind of explaining more context about her family and things like that. And it's interesting because I don't, once again, I don't read very much middle grade. But as a writer, like I've had drilled in my head, show don't tell. Like just, Mm -hmm. you know, have it explained in dialogue. Have it explained in different in the ways that the parents interact with each other or things like that. And it's very interesting because this seems to do the opposite, where any question or any thing that the reader would need more context to, Violet's just going to give you everything. And I'm not sure how much of this is just how middle grade functions because it is a younger reading set and maybe they can't, maybe the assumption is that they won't make the same inferences that maybe your YA or your adult audience would make. Nonetheless, it does read like if this was turned into a movie, I feel like it would need very little adaptation. Yeah, that would, and like there'd be just so much voiceover from Violet. Yeah. Um, but like this, because it reads like a, like she's sitting you down and telling you the story. Like Yes. Like I'm, the way an actual person would tell you a story. I was like, like uh, so this thing happened. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me jump back and explain what's going on with this dude. Because um, like, you know, I, I feel this as a writer. It's just like, what is my narrator's... Like relationship with the um, what is the narrator's relationship with the reader? Mm-hmm. And it's just like I remember reading Animorphs in the first book. Like they're like we're writing this down so we don't forget it, and like you know so other people will know what we're doing. And then that concept is dropped for fifty four books. True, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Like so, it's not like they're like let me like roll it back and talk to you directly, reader. Like, this is Violet telling us her story. Exactly, exactly. And, like, you could definitely kind of make the argument that that's very important because it seems that Violet feels that she's lost a lot of her autonomy in the process of this whole entire thing, even though in many ways she has too much autonomy in the sense that she has a five-year-old sister and... She is the one that takes the kid in, like, in and out daycare. She's the one that has to kind of, you know, do what she can around the house to take care of people. Um, And in many ways, she is not really able to just be. And she knows it and she feels it. Um, So maybe in many ways, the purpose of this kind of narrative is that this is giving her the chance to kind of just be. Yeah. She she has the mind... She has the mind and emotional maturity of a child, but the responsibilities of an adult. Yeah, which is a very real thing to have. Like, not just if your parents are divorced, but as someone who came from a family of parents who worked very, very long hours, like, I I had to do some of these responsibilities for my younger brother. Thankfully, the age gap wasn't that big, so, like, a lot of the responsibilities weren't that, weren't as potentially infuriating, like, what Violet has to go through, especially in the case that her her sister is, like, wedding herself and things like that. Mm -hmm. But, like, I do sympathize with kids who end up having to... I empathize with them, who end up having to kind of play this role of a parent, and especially with big sisters. Like, I hate making such a gendered statement, but the expectation is, a lot of the time, if you're the older sister or perceived as the sister, the assumption is, oh, you're a girl, you can be a caretaker. 
Meanwhile, like, Violet was, was, you know, raised as a boy, these expectations probably wouldn't be dumped on her as much. Yeah. Alright. So, the first line of the book kind of sets the tone very well. Um, I didn't mean... For the record, I didn't mean to send my little sister to the emergency room. Yeah, it's like, it's like, oh no, what? I was like reading this at camp, because it was like, we had her overnight, and I'm like, I'm gonna read a book before I go to bed, and I was like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> so, um, obviously Violet comes from, uh, comes from Canada, uh, but she's visiting her father in Hollywood, or Los Angeles, I should say, and, um... Like, she's staying with her father and her um, two half sisters, Angelica. Mm-hmm. Just, I love that name. Me too. And like, is that Jem's like regular person alias name, or am I confusing it? Like from I think Jem it's Jerica. I think it might be like something similar. I didn't bring my phone with me, so I can't confirm. Um, yeah, but it's actually a very effective way to kind of set up this whole entire situation. So they're divorced. So parents are divorced. Um, Violet and her little sister, the five-year-old I was mentioning, Rosie, um, come down to LA for Christmas. Um, and fake the- Christmas, as they call it. Fake Christmas, yes, very important because they don't go on Christmas Day. They arrive kind of on like the twenty-seventh. Um, so it's kind of talking about how artificial this is. Jerica. Jerica. Okay. So my second guess. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at the fucking name. <laughs> but um. <laughs> um Jerica Barton. I love it. Um. So so the whole entire thing, and this kind of sets the tone in many ways. Also, this first paragraph in particular, it sets up the family situation. Um. There's also a snide remark about Jenica's boobs being fake. Um, and a constant issue that I have with this book, which I will talk about more because it comes up so often, is Violet is very, 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 very critical of people's bodies. Men and women. She is very critical of, in this case, Jenica's, which is that it is fake and artificial. Um, now keep that, like, we'll put a pin in that because I want to go back to that because this is something we're going to see in the way she describes a lot of the women in this story. But she, she, you know, she's swing, coming out, swinging out of the gate, um, saying that, you know, Jenica's boobs, much like this celebration, is phony. Um, so they talk about gifts and all that type of stuff. Um, dad had picked them up from LAX and like, is like, oh, look, we, I have a surprise to show you. And it's that he bought a swanky ass house. Like, (laughs) thanks dad. (laughs) A house I can't live in. (laughs) I hope you guys will be comforted knowing I'm living in this house. And, and this is what I do appreciate about, this is what I think is a strength of the story where the father is doing very well monetarily. Um, and Violet makes no, like, does not hesitate to set up the fact that she and her sister and her mother do not live a life like this. Yeah. They are living in kind of a really, not a great place. Um, she describes that her her own house is like a porch, has a porch that sags, gutters are broken, um, the roof needs to be replaced. Um, so when she sees this, all she feels is bitterness um, and anger about this. 
Um, and then, of course, like we kind of see some of the family dynamics that happen in these scenes. Um, and we can see the tension that is happening because the twins are living a really plush life. Yeah. They literally have a fairy tale themed bedroom. Yeah. Like, they are living a sweet life in this nice house. The guest room is furnished with Ikea furniture for them to stay in. It's like, well, I guess. Here's a room. <laughs> Meanwhile, the kids have, like, this beautiful little banners over their banisters. But, like, I mean, here you go. <laughs> and it just kind of sets up this, like, very drastic life that is happening. Um, and as nice as it is, it's very obvious that there's not really very much effort for Rosie and Violet to feel like they belong. Yeah. Um, and the incident that we're talking about is that they go to, um, they go to the sandbox, uh, Violet, like, the, the twins find cat turds. Because Violet forgot to close the sandbox from the day before. Or rather, she willfully did not. She she chooses to take a piss in a toilet and not flush it. As opposed to (laughs) closing the sandbox. (laughs) Um, And she's like, like, what are these? Like, oh, they're candy bars, so the twins eat the cat turds. And I was like, oh boy, we're in for quite the ride here. This is like the first plot point. Yep. It becomes a major sticking point throughout the rest of the book because Violet is very stubborn and refuses to apologize for it. Yep. Um, and basically is like, I want to go back to Vancouver. And, and <laughs> Literally a day, like, day yeah, later. Yeah, like, day later. It's like, yeah, so I want to leave. And your dad's like, okay. <laughs> um, and this is also where we see one of the earlier points that as much as Violet's pain is valid in so many ways how she behaves does leave a mark on Rosie because Rosie is five. Rosie can't stay. And Rosie doesn't hold this anger toward her father that Violet does. And in many ways you can say, well, Rosie's young, so like she doesn't really understand it. And that's true. But the problem is is that Rosie, because she's so young, is kind of at the mercy of the relationship dynamic that Violet maintains with her father. And this is also a plot point we see throughout the story because unfortunately... As much as Rosie wants to stay and spend time, um, she has to leave with Violet because Violet is her, like, guardian in the case of, in the context of flying and things like that. Yeah, like, it boggles my mind that nobody thought, like, let's send these kids with, like, a chaperone. Like. <laughs> like, how old are you when before you're allowed to, like, fly alone? I don't think 12. <laughs> I don't think so either. I feel like at the... Well, I think the thing is, is, like, I think at the airport, you would have an, someone accompany you. Yeah. Like, it's not to say that, like, you need a guardian, but that somebody from the airline would accompany you, I think is the, the issue. Like, once you're 12, if I recall correctly. But once again, I don't know. Maybe Canada does things differently because we're, we are working within a Canadian book. Yeah, I was just like, is there no, like, did did the dad run to to L.A. to avoid, like, alimony payments? Like, what is this douchebag's reason for not, like, slipping them more money? <laughs> right, it's also much cheaper to film in Vancouver. Yeah. Like, that's where everybody's filming. <laughs> yeah, like, Vancouver never gets to play itself. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. <laughs> um, anyway, so, so, and this is where it begins to flash back and flash forward, and I'll try, we'll try our best, but, like, do keep in mind... When we talk about things, they're not necessarily linear, um, mostly because there are a lot of, I hesitate to call them tangents, but more clarification given in many ways. 
Um, so, like, it moves on, and we we go, we flash forward to school, um, and this is where we kind of meet the, the, the preteen adversaries of Violet, because Violet is a weird kid, as established. I hesitate <laughs> to call her weird, because I feel like I was a far stranger middle schooler, but, like, she's not... She, she doesn't fit in. Yeah. Like, she, she's more, like, Violet is, I wouldn't, Violet is, like, yeah, I hesitate to use the word weird, because that's othering, but, like, I would say she's, like, she's too smart for her, like, she's too smart for her own good at that age. Yeah. She's too stubborn, too frustrated, like, to become friends with people easily. She has one friend who's been her friend since kindergarten. I forget the friend's name. Phoebe. Phoebe. Um, and, like, yeah, she's not going to make friends easily, especially with the people that she considers, like, beneath her or, like, just not her. Yeah, she's a very interesting protagonist in the sense that in many ways, she's very hard to root for. She's a very difficult child. And there are many reasons why she is acting the way she is, and I'm very sympathetic to them. But much like, I think, some some kids, as difficult as, like, as much as I understand and how difficult her situation is, I understand why other 12-year-olds don't want to spend time with her. And I know that sounds really mean, but, like, The way that she talks to, I mean, not to say that, so, like, there's Ashley and Lauren, and they're kind of, like, the queen bees of the school. Yeah. And, like, they're mean, and they do really mean stuff, but literally the first interaction we have with Violet is Violet correcting their grammar. Yeah. And it's like, (laughs) oh, boy. And it's like, I I understand. I did the same thing as when I was young. Honestly, I think I grew out of it by the time I was 12, but I did that a lot when I was 10. Like... (laughs) I understand the temptation, but at the same time, I understand why a 12-year-old would be like, I don't want to talk to this girl, because all she's going to do is correct how I speak. Yeah. The only person I ever wanted to be around who corrected my grammar was my grandfather. Yeah, like, it's something that, that usually it's somebody with some sort of power or leadership that you're like, yeah, sure, you can correct how I speak. Like, Well, he, was, he always did it kindly. It was, it was mostly just, like, you know... It'd be like, I'd say something like, and me, he'd be like, and I. He's like, and I. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, there's there's a way to do it, but obviously Violet is pretty crass in many ways and is not going to do it. Yeah. Um, and then we meet Ashley and Lauren, and Ashley, Ashley's description is really funny because I feel like in many ways it's like how we would probably describe Paige. <laughs> and it says, and this is how she's introduced, it says, Ashley was at the top of the food chain at Emily Carr Elementary. It didn't mean she was the most popular. It just meant she acted like she owned the place, and for some reason we all went along with it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> but do you th- do you think um, Lauren was named after Lauren Collins? Perhaps. Yeah, that's all. Um, I want to believe. <laughs> I mean, well, it's just like Ashley and Lauren. Like, there's so many names in the world. Like. I, I can't not second guess everything Susan Nielsen does. It's true enough, because it's like, you really could have picked different names. Yeah, and, one, and like, the beta's name is Ashley. Like, I hate calling her the beta, but she, I hate using the term the beta, but, like, in this, it's very clearly angling for that, where, like, Ashley's kind of the leader, um, and is the one that is described as, like, prettier. 
And then Lauren is called the copycat version. And it was legitimately called by Violet, only shorter and a bit odd looking. Like all her features were squished a little too close together. Yeah. Which um, is another description of a girl that Violet is cutting down on her looks. I think it's like, I think a lot of that is to like really drive home the nature of um, Violet's immaturity. Yeah. Because like she's just cutting these people down for like, because of, you know, at face value. Like when we meet, um, when we meet. Violet's mom's boyfriend Dudley. How like I sat back and was like this guy fucking sounds fucking awesome, right? Like I feel like when you're like our age, we're like, yeah, he sounds great. <laughs> he sounds wonderful, but twelve year old. His name's Dudley Weiner. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to him. Um, I have more to say about the way that she describes people. I will get to it. Um, but so like we kind of meet them. And, you know, we talk a little, like, you know, she, she gets kind of cut down on how she, on how she looks and everything. And Phoebe, and then we kind of enter Phoebe, the best friend. And Phoebe offers Violet to be able to do laundry at her house. Um, so we have a friend that's pretty aware of situ, of the situation, understands that Violet's situation isn't the best. Um, but is also not going to be like, hey, you're fucking poor. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's just if you want to, you can come over. Um, and I, I felt like Phoebe was like, a, like you, you combined Manny and um, Emma. Yes. Um, I do want to make note of this, and this is going to sound super nitpicky, but much like Degrassi has a race problem, I have a slight issue with this in the sense that Phoebe, from my understanding, other than the fact that um, the love interest gets revealed that he's Quebecois, like half Quebecois or something like that, She's the only one that race is explicitly described. So she explicitly, and the way that it's described, it just cuts to the chase because it says, um, it talks about Phoebe's parents. It says, Kathy and Gunter are Phoebe's parents. Kathy is Chinese Canadian and Gunter is Swiss Canadian. They're both psychologists and neither of them like being called mom and dad because it sounds too hierarchical. Um... So she's the only character, once again, other than one character who is just, who is established as uh, partially Quebecois, um, whose race is explicitly situated, which of course always pings a red flag of sorts to me as a reader because that reads to me as operate under the assumption that every other character is white. Yeah. Not to say that that's like I understand that a lot of the communities in Canada are very homogenous. I don't know what the i don't know off the top of my head what the diversity of vancouver is um but it never quite sits right with me when the only character who is a person of color is the best friend and i especially don't love it because phoebe straight up describes herself as violet's sidekick and that really upsets me because I think that their friendship is actually pretty solid. I think that throughout the story, Phoebe calls Violet out on her shit. <laughs> um, and I think that's very good. And I think that it's really important to see that. But the fact that Phoebe does not see herself through the dialogue as Violet's equal. And she's also someone who is um, a person of color really does not sit right with me coupled with the fact that this is someone who is Chinese and notoriously in media 
Asian characters are portrayed as subservient or meek or going with the flow. Um, it feels like, once again, I don't think this is intentional, but I do think that this is something that happens very often with white writers where it's like, I'm gonna write a person of color and all you do is kind of reinforce stereotypes. Yeah. Like, it's, it's not enough to just put them in there. They have to, like, you have to give them some agency. Exactly, exactly. And I, I, like, I understand as a white author, you may not feel like you could adequately tell very much culturally about being a mixed kid in Vancouver. But you can try and find a way that your character maybe doesn't describe herself as a sidekick, but maybe as a partner in crime. Like, say something like that, as opposed to literally describing yourself. At one point, she describes herself as the Robin to Violet's Batman. Yeah. <laughs> Just a thought. Yeah. I Though that does make me think, um, they actually did that in Scrubs mm-hmm. with uh, Turk and JD, but JD imagines it, and he's Robin, and Turk is Batman. <laughs> like... That would be different, but the problem is, is this came straight out of Phoebe's mouth. Yeah, no, I just... But I, I do like subverting that yeah. <laughs> a little bit, like in Scrubs. And then Turk's just like, well, it could be worse, Robin. You could be Alfred. And he immediately cuts to JD's Alfred. It's like, damn you, sir. <laughs> but, like, that would be fine. That would be good, and that would be subverting it. But also, I feel like to have that type of thing, it would also necessitate that this is Phoebe's story. And... Phoebe's parents are together, <laughs> so there we go, most of the major conflict of the story. Yeah, Phoebe sounds like she has a pretty sick life. She has very, like, calm, understanding parents. Like... Yeah, like, Violet comes down kind of hard, and I understand, especially when you're 12, like, you're gonna come down on some of the weird idiosyncrasies of the family, like, this fact that they use, they only go by their first names, and they sometimes expose Phoebe to media and experiences that many people wouldn't really expect a 12-year-old to be exposed to. But in many ways, like, she seems to have, like, she she has a lot of understanding of how people work because it sounds like her parents are very transparent about what they're doing to her when they're parenting her. Yeah, Phoebe, ha- Phoebe has hit the level of maturity that Violet should be at. Yeah, but Phoebe still acts like a kid, which I do yeah. commend Nielsen for. Like, Phoebe doesn't come off as this sage who isn't 12. Phoebe still is buying into some of Violet's schemes, and even though she, like, she at one point straight up tells Violet, like, you are putting your anger toward the twins, your half-sisters, and that's not what you should be putting your anger into. Yeah. But she will still play with the schemes that Violet is doing, whether it's um, trying to retaliate against the mother's new boyfriend, or, um, writing letters to George Clooney, like, she's still gonna do those things. She... She is mature in certain ways, but not to a point that I don't believe she's 12. Yeah, there's a, it reminds me, like, there's, a, like, a dash of Lisa Simpson in there. Yes, I feel like there is a very Lisa Simpson-esque quality to how Phoebe is written. Yeah. And that's a compliment. Oh, yeah, Lisa's one of the greatest, like, female characters ever written. <laughs> True. I love her. So, like, I think that's a good thing. Um... And so, like, they, they do a gift exchange. Also, by the way, before we go any further, this book is so 2010. Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, which is another thing. Like, we're critiquing it, but it is eight years old as of right now. But do keep that in mind. Like, they, they straight up do something and Violet, like, they fist bump and Violet calls an Obama bump. <laughs> 
And I was like, oh. <laughs> Simpler times. Ye old 2010. Oh, I miss the Obama bump. I right. Miss Obama. <laughs> it's just like, oh boy. But it does also, and like, I know some American viewer, American listeners are probably like, what do you mean? They're talking about Obama. They're Canadian. Canadians know so much about U.S. politics. Kids know so much about U.S. politics. I worked with Canadian youth last summer, and they knew more about U.S. politics than I would expect some of my sophomores. It was really funny. Well, it's just like they mentioned Obama on Doctor Who, because everybody was just like, oh my god, the Americans finally elected somebody sensible. Like, for it's really interesting how much internationally, like, people know our shit. Yeah. For better and for worse. Um, but anyway, they exchange gifts, and this is important because Phoebe gives... Um, Violet and Magic 8-Ball, um, and this becomes a, I don't even know what the word to use. It's something that happens, she uses it throughout the story, so it is kind of important to mention it. It becomes a way for her to communicate with her father and distance him even more so. It's true. Like, he, like, they, the father keeps calling, trying to talk to her and get her to apologize for doing a, just a very terrible thing. And, um, she will now only talk to him through the Magic 8 Ball, so it'll be like, I don't think so, or, you know, reply is hazy. Um, it's a way of, like, she just, Violet does not want to deal with things that upset her. Yeah. Like, the, it doesn't happen often, but when people try and tell her, like, the, like, hand to God truth, and it's like an uncomfortable truth that she doesn't want to deal. She'll put her hands over her ears and just starts saying la 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 la. Like literally. Like yeah. And it's like that's a kid thing to do. Yep. Like, but it's a, something you do when you're eight, not when you're twelve. Yeah. Um. And then you know they're they're th- then we meet the Shauna like Jean Paul. <laughs> Jean Paul. Um, oh my god! I didn't even realize his name is even that close to Sean. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I feel like, ah, Susan, were you, were you trying? Anyway, so he's like, (laughs) just name him Sean Paul. Yeah. (laughs) But like, he's like, he is like this boy that Violet thinks is super cute. Um, He is from Winnipeg, which I'm really very, very certain is where Sean, where Sean is from. Like, I'm pretty certain he, he's from Winnipeg too. Anyway, so this is where Violet is very clear that, like, she thinks he's super cute, but after one of her mother's worst um, boyfriends, she pledges that she is not going to fall, like, you know, she's not going to fall in love, um, she's not going to have a boyfriend, they're more trouble than they're worth. Um, And it's one of those things that kind of is, is... loop throughout the story where there's a lot of setup in the early parts of this book. Um, He's from Wasika Beach. Oh, darn it. I knew it started with a W. I don't know anything about Canadian geography. My apologies. Um, But, so it kind of establishes that he's here, um, and he's cute, and regardless of how cute he is and how much Violet, like, you know, is interested in him, um, it's Ashley, the queen bee, who actually makes a point to talk to him. Um, and there's a really good moment at the end of this as this is happening, which is, and I loved it, I highlighted it because I think it embodies being 12, which is, I hate her, I murmured, I want to be her, Phoebe replied. 
when the two of us knew that it was perfectly natural to have both those feelings all at once. Yep. <laughs> there are like these amazing moments. And even though I have issues with this book, I think that so much of it is so strongly written. And I think it really reiterates that Susan Nielsen really understands what it's like to be a 12-year-old girl. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm very impressed because she is, she's either, she's like either in her 50s or about to turn 50. I can't remember her age off the top of my head. But to be able to access that part of being a kid with such clarity, um, when you are so far from that point in your life yourself, really speaks to how good of a writer she is. Yeah. And it's just like, there's so many truths in this. Um, so the story continues. Um, we introduce this conflict that um, there's this girl at Rosie's daycare who is harassing her. Um, she tears her fairy wings that her dad got her for Christmas. Um, and so, like any five-year-old, she bites her. <laughs> um, and the problem is the daycare is only seeing the aftermath. So they're only really seeing and reacting to Rosie biting Isabel as opposed to actually addressing the root of the issue. So Violet takes it upon herself to just kind of be like, whatever, and not report the issue to her mother, even though she's been asked to, um, and just say like, you know, Rosie, it's okay. Um, and finding ways to repair the wings and finding ways to help Rosie kind of get through it. Yeah. That, that does eventually come to a head when they're like, we need to talk to your mother. Yeah. And I think that that ends in another, like, Violet... No, well, the mom defends her daughter. Like, mm -hmm. good for her, Spike. Um. Stop! <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I mean, let's get to it, because they, they, go, they go to her salon school. Yeah. Like, right after. So, um, this kind of introduces their mother. Um, she works at a, hair, a school of hair design. And she's like the lead teacher, I'm pretty certain. Like yeah. she's, she's a pretty big deal there. And this is where we introduce some of her hairstylist friends. Um, and this is where I... This is where I found Violet's need to cut down on women very grating. Mm -hmm. Because we meet three... We meet the mother and we meet her two friends. And the way that she describes these women is very tiresome for me. Because the first one we meet is Amanda, who apparently is a character from one of Susan Nielsen's other books. So apparently, mm. like, there's a couple characters within this universe that do appear and reappear in different books, which I think is very charming. Um, so there's Amanda, and Amanda is Violet's favorite. Um, what's And she seems really cool. Like, she's very, she's younger, um, but she's very nice and very kind. She has a very nice boyfriend named Cosmo. Um, they seem to get along very, very well. And they're kind of Violet's rock that like somewhere out there love must exist because these two are together and happy. Um, and doesn't she, she also comments on Cosmo's looks like she says he's also very beautiful. Yeah, like they're just gorgeous. Um, and the way that Violet kind of characterizes why Amanda is gorgeous is kind of what got at me because Amanda sounds cool as fuck. Like she knits her own sweaters and stuff and she's like, well, she's so cool because she wears sweaters and she thrifts things and she's very covered. 
And that really annoyed me in certain ways because, and I think the reason why, and I want to establish why all of this is so grating to me, for all the growth that Violet has by the end of the story, there's very little growth concerning her need to cut down on people's appearances. And I understand to a certain extent the expectation that a 12-year-old will grow out of this by the time they are, you know, by the time the book is finished is unrealistic. But there's also a part of me that feels like when you are writing for such a young, impressionable age group, you kind of need to bend the rules of reality slightly so that at least she gets somewhat called out on this type of behavior. Yeah, like, it would have been, like, the point isn't even, it's not a point that's driven home. Because we, we have, we see this, okay, so, sorry, I'll get my thoughts. Like, Dudley is the epitome of this lesson. He's not a good-looking dude, like, you know, he has flaws, and, like, she only kind of half-learns the lesson by that. She doesn't, she, nobody calls her out on, like, being like, hey, you're judging him just on how he looks? That's just super not cool. Like, so, just, if you're going to make that part of the book, like, it's, I hate, like, I don't use the term Chekhov's gun, because it's not a gun. It's not, like, a plot point. But, like, Chekhov's lesson. You know, if you're gonna bring this up and make it one of her faults, make it a fault that, like, either gets addressed or she learns a lesson about by the end of the book. So, it's like, it's kind of... It reminds me a lot of when, you know, people have problematic behavior on Degrassi. Mm-hmm. Where when it's not just driven home, this isn't... Jimmy... Like, when Jimmy's bad behavior is not driven home, like, that this is not the right thing to do, it just, I'm like, did, did the kids learn this lesson? Like, or, also, all the LGBTQ, like, jokes, or homophobic jokes, I should say, in Degrassi Season 1, where it's just like, we can make these jokes, it's totally cool to make these jokes, like, no, it's not Degrassi! Yeah, like, you don't get to just kind of laugh at this. Because, I mean, because the way that she describes her mother is really mean. It is incredibly mean. I mean, I get it. Even though she was in her late 30s, my mom was still super pretty. Fine. Like, when you're a kid, being in your late 30s feels like a light years away. And I understand that. But, like, the thing is, is, like, she says she'd even managed to keep her figure for the most part. And then she proceeds to describe how she looks, um, which is, it was her clothes I couldn't stand. She started dressing differently after the divorce papers were signed. Her jeans were too tight and her shirt was cropped to let her stomach show, a stomach that had to stretch not once but twice to hold babies. A soft layer of flab drooped over the waist of her pants. To top it off, her belly button was pierced, a belated birthday gift from her friend Karen after they had too many margaritas one night. And and the thing is, is a lot of the way that her mother is dressing, her mother admits is not necessarily how she likes to dress, but is coming from a dark place of her, like, trying to be desirable. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm very sympathetic to, like, you trying to dress something that you're not, but at the same time, there's never a lesson, like, you know, her mom doesn't necessarily sit her down and go, look, like, I'm coming from a dark place when I was doing this. But also, you shouldn't judge someone dressed like this anyway. Yeah, well, we get that because, like, there's a scene later in the book where Ashley and Laura are passing along pictures um, of her mom drunk 
at one of Karen's parties. Like, she's sitting in a guy's lap. They're just, like, chugging. They're, they're partaying. Yeah. And we do have that conversation, but it's just, like, it's not good enough. No, no. It's legitimately explained. It's, like, I was coming. I was in a dark place. And, like, that's kind of <laughs> it. And it's, like, I understand that, you know, I understand and I'm sympathetic to that aspect of the conversation. But it's, it you know, when there's a lesson like that that's to be learned, it should also be like, hey, you know what also sucks other than depression? Slut shaming. Maybe you shouldn't do that, Violet. Like, <laughs> it would have been nice to maybe see that teachable moment pushed a little further. I mean, is this, like, but it's mostly in her internal dialogue. It's in her internal dialogue. She doesn't really bring yeah. it up to people. So, but it's... I felt like it would have been a good thing to bring up. Like, she's just mm-hmm. like, like, yo, Dudley, you fugly as fuck. <laughs> yeah, and, like, it, it's just, there's a couple moments that I think they could have done it. Um, because she also does a similar treatment to um, who she perceives as kind of, like, the adversary and the reason for why her mom's acting this way, Karen, who is another hairstylist who, I swear to God, was from Jersey reading her descriptions and the way that she talks. <laughs> um, she straight up is wearing a shirt that says Cougar. i love her um but anyway she's she's kind of like violet describes amanda as the angel on her mom's shoulder and karen as the devil on her mom's shoulder and as frank established like this is the one that was like hey let's party let's do fun stuff etc etc you need both to get through a divorce honestly it's true and and yeah like it's very true you need the one who's gonna be like yo let's just Let's just sit in tonight. We'll talk. We'll like have some wine. Everything will be fine. The other one's like, you need to go out and party until you can't think anymore. <laughs> yeah, like you need to have a balance. And I think that's also why her mom has these two people in her life. Because I think that she understands to a certain extent you do need both types of people in your life. Like there is no perfect person. And as an adult, you're better at understanding that than when you're 12. Yeah. Um, so they're talking, there's the usual shenanigans, it's very, like, salon talk plus kind of characters getting caught up to what is going on, um, and then her mother drops the bomb that she has a date. With Dudley Wiener. (laughs) Yeah, so, so, um, obviously, like, everyone's really on edge about this because her mom has not had a good track record. There, there was one that, I swear to God, like, I felt like... The mom has um, Spike qualities, but I feel like if Spike... Like, there's one that just spanks, I think it's Rosie. Mm-hmm. Because, like, she spilled some... Like, she got chocolate on his suit. Yeah. And, like, I feel like that was Spike. She would have banged the crap out of that dude. True. Like, just over the head, onto the knee. <laughs> exactly. Like, goodbye. Um... Yeah, and so, like, she's had a really bad track record, so Violet's really on edge about this, which rightfully so, like, she has dated some duds, um, including the one that they mentioned in the scene, who straight up is, like, has her go to an expensive restaurant with him, and then is like, oh, I I can't pay. Um, And then, as this is happening, it also establishes the George Clooney angle, which is that at her mom's station, there is a signed headshot of George Clooney, um, and the whole entire story behind it is that her mom worked in the film industry for a little bit, 
um, and was a on-site stylist and things like that. And she was doing kind of like day fill-ins. And one day her assignment was to style George Clooney's hair. And he was super duper sweet and nice. And she always looked back on it with fondness. And so she keeps this this headshot of him, um, and he, he writes, To Ingrid, may our paths cross again. Dreamy. Well, yeah, I mean, George Clooney, George Clooney was George Clooney. <laughs> right? And it's also really funny because a big plot point of this is like, well, George Clooney said he's not the marrying type, even though now we know him as, I mean, he married a freaking amazing woman yeah like <laughs> wow um and also has kids and everything and it's also really funny to see how much can change in the time that this book has been published um because in many ways his his image even though he's still like you know we remember him for that kind of like playboy type of image it's not the case anymore yeah i mean i do get like i've always gave him credit for that for just being like yo I'm not into dating. I'm not doing this thing. Like, I was like, I can appreciate that honesty, George. Right. <laughs> I say as if I would have any, 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 like, logistics of dating and be like, yeah, that's totally understandable. And I respect it. And I was like, like, Kevin Smith tells this story that makes me think that George Clooney really would act like this towards a kid who did what Violet does. And we'll get to that. But, like, because Kevin Smith tells this story that, like, um... George Clooney, like, came up to him drunk at a party. He's like, you write, you write for that movie Poop Shoot website? And Kevin Smith's like, do I have to fight George Clooney? <laughs> but, like, like he still told this story that, like, this guy, this guy Kevin, Kevin Turan, gave a bad review of one of George Clooney's movies. So a bunch of him, him and his friends, like, went and egged Kenny Turan's house and then, like, put a, like, art- he then wrote an article variety that just said, look, I I want to put on the record, I did not egg Kenny Turan's house. So, you know, Kenny Turan's like, it was Clooney! <laughs> oh my god. That is amazing. What the heck? I know very little about George Clooney, ultimately. I, I, I feel like I know more about Amal than I know about George Clooney, which probably speaks more to... <laughs> I mean, she's cooler than George Clooney. I mean, yeah. She's a human rights lawyer. George Clooney like, is an actor. They're one of those, one of those you want in your corner. Yeah. Not the actor. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, so let's fast forward to date night. Um, Violet is trying to spy, and, and Rosie's kind of like trying to spy with her, and and like Rosie's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna be tough too, kind of. But then like <laughs> the second that. Like, you know, he opens up the door, um, you know, it, it all, all bets are off, basically, um, because he is described as a mole. <laughs> Do you know what I kept imagining when I thought about Dudley? What? Bob the Brain. I don't know Bob the Brain. Oh, um, you ever watch Stranger Things? No. Okay, um, that's my recommendation for you. Stranger Things is really good. But like it's he's played by Sean Astin and he's oh, da- okay. he's dating Winona Ryder's character. Oh, he's that character. Yeah, and he like he's you know kind of pudgy little dude, but like he's super sweet, just I love super him. nice. You will love his character in season two. I just love Sean Astin, so <laughs> that's I mean, good to hear. Yeah, like 
I want to say something, but it's a spoiler. I don't want don't to say anything. I want to ride the high that is me watching Sean Astin <laughs> on my screen. Yeah. Um, but so, like, he's described as, and once again, we get another one of these great violet descriptions, which is he was pudgy. His skin, his pale skin was sprinkled with freckles. His ears were too big for his head. His hair was reddish brown and thinning. He was wearing a loud multicolor sweater. Its loose fit did not manage to hide his man boobs. Come on, bud. <laughs> right? It's like, come on. I know I'm supposed to be cheering for you, but you're making it very difficult. But and but, but uh, I, I almost called him Bob. Dudley loves puns. Like, yeah. He's just a super nice. Like, like he's a solid dude. Like she sits him down and starts grilling him with questions. Like, do you have like, are you have you been arrested for anything recently? Like, do you have like an active like income stream? And, like, yeah, it's very clear, like, she's trying to protect her mother. Uh, Donnie just opened up the page to the Jenica voodoo doll. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that. But, yeah, like, he, he, he seems to understand very well the issue at hand here, which is that he is the outsider, and he is pursuing someone who has two kids. And whether you, you know, no matter how great you vibe with the person it's not just about you. Yeah. And and Violet emphasizes that too on her end, how whenever her mom gets into these relationships, it's going to impact her whether she likes it or not. And Dudley seems to be very aware of it in a way that you would hope someone is, which is like, you know, he's not mean to her. He lets her ask these questions. And even, you know, sometimes he says like, you know, that's a bit too much. Like, you know, I'm, I'm uncomfortable by that. But he doesn't yell at her or get pissed off at her. He gets a little frustrated, but he can roll with it. He, I kept thinking, like, he would make a great dad. Like, a make yeah. a good stepdad. Yeah, and, like, un- understandably, like, you know, understandably, like, when your standard is George Clooney, he doesn't really f- make that. But there is this emotional component that she's just refusing to look into. I would honestly still take Dudley over George Clooney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dudley seems far more useful. <laughs> he seems very sweet and very good. Um, but during this, we get a little bit of information about her parents and how they kind of came together, um, which is, to keep it very brief, they get together through working in the industry, um, the kind of a shotgun wedding type of situation. Um, Violet knows that she was, her mom was pregnant with her before they got married. Yeah. So they have that whole entire thing happen. Um, and then they're together, and then her father works on a TV show and gets really, really into talking about the lead, who is Jenica, and then they try to surprise, like, Violet, Rosie, and Mom tried to surprise, um, their dad on set, and when they see him at the trailer, he's walking out, fixing his belt, with Jenica, like, right there with him. Do, do you think Jenica was kind of like Jennifer Love Hewitt? Ooh. Because that, I was just like, I was reading about the show, it's like, the it's about a woman who's a ghost who's solving crime. Yeah, like it sounds like, like Ghost Whisperer type deal. Yeah, and I'm just like, is that, did like, did Susan Nielsen get spurned for Jennifer Love Hewitt at some point? <laughs> right? It's very like, but I also think that's also something that we see, like, we see that type of gag happen quite a bit. Kind of like, I'm thinking of, like, forgetting Sarah Marshall and how, like, there's the, like, 
mind reading pet show gag type deal like i feel like that that type of genre is something that's like an easy joke of sorts and i like i even like that's why i love jenica's name so much because it's the name of somebody you know isn't going to make it in hollywood yes because they're just like i'm gonna give myself this this name that like like you know any asian be like oh boy like this is gonna be it's a good thing she's pretty, because, like, this name is, like, impossible to market. Right. Yeah. So, like, you know, that happens, and then, um, Phoebe and, uh, Violet make a voodoo doll of Jenica, um, because, like, the parents separate, um, the father's living in, like, a, a furnished apartment, kind of, like, a ways away, um, they make a voodoo doll, and they're like, oh, this is gonna work, and then Jenica leaves Vancouver to go to L.A., um, and then pretty much everything falls apart for real because the father goes, we're getting a divorce. I'm leaving. Oh, by the way, Jenica is pregnant with twins. Violet, your dad is like just... Your dad's just, a he, little garbage man. He's a huge piece of shit. He is a garbage man because it's like... I, like, I don't want to judge people for, for having kids out of wedlock. I feel like that's really not an issue. But there's something to be said about doing it twice in a way that doesn't look like it was planned either time. It just seems to me that he is incredibly careless. He's, like, he's incredibly careless. He's selfish. Like, he's a cheater, that alone. Like, if we're doing rankings for this for this book, like... He's at the bottom of the barrel. Hey, JT, JT and Toby, meet your new mentor. <laughs> it's Violet's oh. dad. He's a piece of garbage. Yeah, it's just, he's incredibly terrible. And, like, I, ugh, like, the things that he does, it's just, like, especially because some of these things appear to be repeated, is awful. It feels like he has had no growth as a human being in, like, 15 years. And, um, well, well, we'll get to that, but, like, so, um, but Dudley starts encroaching on, Violet sees Dudley is encroaching on their life, like, he's there for girls, for girls' movie night. Yep. Like, which just becomes movie night. Um, and that's when, uh, Violet is just like, alright, it's time for me to, like, step in and start taking drastic action. And that's when they write their first letter to George Clooney, which comes back with a form letter. Um, hey, uh, George gets so much fan mail that we you can't respond. It's like straight up phrased like that too. Yeah. <laughs> which reminded me of Matt Smith uh, and his fan mail, where like he also like once he became the doctor, he was getting like a ton of it, and like his he had his like elderly father. Start answering some of the fan mail, fan mail for him. Oh my gosh. Like, they worked together on it. And, like, this one woman sent him a very erotic fan, like, fan letter. Like, if you come here, I'll do these things. And, like, the dad's like, well, Matt's not available. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but... Anyway, um... A lot of stuff is happening simultaneously. This Jean-Paul character um, comes back and Violet wangs it up so badly because she's like, she... I don't know where... She calls him a grapefruit in French. In the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she was like, 
oh, like, oh, you speak French? And then he says in, like, perfect French, like, yeah, my dad's, like, Québécois, what up? <laughs> and, like, she's just like, oh, yeah, grapefruit. <laughs> <laughs> which is actually like really fucking funny um so that's happening the issues with rosie and this girl isabel are still happening um and of course whenever it happens um you know rosie is not getting proper say in the situation so a lot of the things that are set up in the beginning of the book are continuing to mount um rosie's Rosie, they they make a point of like when things get bad, Rosie starts wetting the bed out of stress, which is a very real thing that happens in her age group. Yeah. I source, I am a assistant camp director, and <laughs> I have had to help a lot of five year olds who have wet themselves due to the stress of being at camp, or moving, or various other things. So like once again, good for you, Susan Nielsen, for like it. I feel like this happens in a lot of books when we talk about kids it's very hard to find sometimes it's very hard to find authors who actually understand how kids work mm -hmm. and Rosie feels like a five-year-old who has had a bit of a regression yeah like and Violet does feel like a 12-year-old who has also had a regression and both of these are due to the trauma of your family separating like there is a lot of really good detail in terms of how your mental state is going to be impacted by something like this. Yeah. Um, that like they start spying openly spying on Dudley. Um, oh gosh. Like Violet, an obviously mate Phoebe goes into the goes into the bathroom. He has a bathroom store. Um, yeah, just like bathing supplies and stuff like that. Like kind of like a lush but more functional. Yeah. And, like, she walks out and she's like, oh, man, he th thinks my mom would really like these soaps. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, they're doing a lot of this kind of spy stuff, which, once again, kind of goes into what I like about, um, what I like about Phoebe, where, like, I think some people would write Phoebe in a way that she's like, this is so above me. But Phoebe just, like, is like, yeah, sure, I'll go on a covert mission. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, very many Santos. Yeah, yeah, it's very, like, I'll fucking go. Um, there's also this kind of progressing theme about facebook which once again really sets in 2010 but i think you <laughs> i think you could put facebook still in certain ways because i know a lot of kids still have facebook and a lot of it is like this weird maintaining of like social graces with family members so like it, it feels still like it doesn't quite feel glaringly bad and i also think this kind of idea of like so like violet has very few friends on facebook um, and then she kind of runs into these issues, like, Karen, her mom's friend, wants to, uh, add her, and things like that. Like, she's putting people in Facebook purgatory. Like, a lot of those very real feelings. <laughs> there's a, um, there's a great line. I just saw 8th grade last night. Um, I'm so jealous. I need to see it. I'll, I'll have, I have a lot of things to say about it when we get there. But, like, um... Like, this this mom is just like, oh, like, you know, Kenny will invite you on Facebook. Kenny's like, nobody uses Facebook anymore. Yeah, like, it's very <laughs> real. And, like, yeah, no, that works. But, like, in here, it works, too, because it kind of speaks to a lot of the people who want Violet, who want Violet to add her are adults. Yeah. Which is what I think Facebook has, is, is nowadays. No, Ashley uh, wants Violet to add her once she realizes that that's a link to Jean-Paul. Yes, but that's, that's a different 
aspect of it. Um, Karen Streep asks Violet if she's gay. She says, I'm not gay. I'm just not interested. I, for one, think it would have been interesting if Violet was not straight, but whatever. She can figure that out. She's still young, so I dropped my book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that picked up in some way. And for the record, I dropped my book. Just pick it up next to all the big stack of fruits basket. I know, right? Yeah, I don't know if people realize, like, I, I'm very commonly recording next to a giant stack of fruits basket. I don't know if that helps give you the image of how the magic happens around these parts. I I've revealed clean, a lot. I did clean up the bedside table to hopefully give you more room. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, anyway, so, so, like, shenanigans are happening. Jean-Paul gets involved in the shenanigans, which is very exciting. Um, Once again... Sean. <laughs> yes, it's very Sean because he's just like, oh, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm running a covert mission and spying on my mom's boyfriend. And he's like, yeah, okay. Do you need help? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, sure. Though, actually, I think Sean would think that was, like, Sean wants to help where he thinks it's, there's a point to helping. While Sean would be like, no, covert missions are stupid. I don't do covert missions. I don't hunt. <laughs> yeah. But I don't like, covert. Um, it was just like, he just does that. Um, and as this is happening, Violet is giving a lot of backstory. She actually goes into some of the boyfriends that her mother has had, which have ranged from alcoholic to abusive, like literally spanking her little sister. Um, like they're just, and like that one is particularly devastating to her because he, before that point, came off so perfect. And that one really does a number on her. And she's, she's pretty upfront about it. Like, how she legitimately fantasized that he in particular was going to become her stepdad. And he's actually just a piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, that's like... I mean, that's common abusive behavior. Yeah, no, like. it's, it's textbook in many ways. Um, so, and she also talks about her complicated feelings toward her father. Where, like, she straight up talks about how um, she, she says, um, I didn't, so she was talking to Amanda about this, and she says, I didn't tell Amanda that I sometimes wish dad was dead, killed in a car crash, or struck by lightning. I thought it would be easier to grieve if he was dead and buried instead of alive and well, living in L.A. with a bimbo who was about to give him a new set of children to love. <sighs> Which is really rough. Yes. But very real. Like, there's a lot of aspects of this story and sometimes I feel like it can be a detriment from a storytelling perspective but in other ways it's so commendable how Susan Nielsen does not hesitate mm -hmm. to get into the ugly aspects of being this age yeah and going through this like yeah we're get like it's hard it's it's hard, like we said before, it's hard to root for, um, it's hard to root for Violet, but, like, I understand what Violet's doing. Like, I understand all of this. It's just, you know, as a 32-year-old, I'm like, oh, kid, you, I would not enjoy being around you, but I get you. Yeah, like, it's, it hurts. It hurts a lot to see, yeah. um, and to see it so viscerally. And I do think that there is something to be said about, while there's aspects of this story I'd be very apprehensive to give to like a sixth grader or a seventh grader, there are aspects of it that I think are very important for, for this audience to read, which is that, you know, you, 
some people do have issues with this type, like, you know, their relationships with their parents and how they perceive them and how they may not really like them. Mm-hmm. And it's important to have media that exists where you do have characters who straight up are like, I don't like my parents. I don't like what they have done to me. I don't like what they've done to each other. I don't, like, you know, I, I do wish that they were dead and took it out of the equation. It would be a good, um, it's, like, I remember when 13 Reasons Why came out, people said, like, watch this for your kids. And, like, I would suggest doing this as well. Like. Yeah, this is definitely something that I feel like, to recommend it, I would have a huge caveat that if you're reading it with middle schoolers, it's really important to have a conversation afterwards. Yeah. But, I mean, that's, like, I feel like that's one of the best, like, kind of media. Um, where you're just like, no, everybody should sit down and talk about this. Like, yeah, and I think that there's a lot of ways that you... I think there's a lot of media you should do that, but I feel like this one especially, number one, you can kind of address some of the issues within the writing itself that I did not feel like were properly resolved. But also it does allow you to kind of be like, look, like, this character is in a pretty dark place. And let's talk about that and how that's going to impact how you react and how you behave and how that doesn't make you a horrible, horrible person but it does sometimes mean that how you behave is not necessarily appropriate. Yeah. Um, And then, like, you know, we have the whole entire spying thing. I actually love the exchange Violet has with Jean-Paul because, like, they talk about, like, what is it called? Caillou? Whatever that show is with the bald kid. Yeah. And um, they're, like, talking about it, and, like, Violet kind of gets to what she misses about her father because um, Jean-Paul's parents are separated i think too yeah and so they kind of relate to it and how like they miss like you know talking about like missing fathers and things and violet admits that she misses him and when and he asks her why and he says uh, and she says he used to watch saturday morning cartoons with me and rosie he'd bring us big bowls of cereal to eat and like, you know, I was talking about the different things. And then, like, she mentions Caillou. Ka- I can never pronounce it. Caillou. 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 Um, and he just goes, I loved Caillou. <laughs> and there is something very endearing about it because, like, he brings it up time and time again. And it feels much like when you get on a nostalgia trip and, like, you're just kind of, like, hyper-focusing on it. And it <laughs> felt very real. Like, this is how people talk. And, like, it's brought up again, and, I don't know, I find it very, very nice. Um, oh, yeah, and it's, like, asking about, like, you know, everything was a lie, like, did he actually, like, hate the show? And he's just like, nobody could hate that. <laughs> and I, don't, I found it very sweet. Yeah. Um, and then he grabs her hand, which was a bit fast, but whatever. Um, and it's just, it's cute. Well, I was going to say, for, like... I, I felt like holding hands is not as fast as less socially adept boy, like 12-year-old boys would do. Yeah. It could be worse. It could be Sean. Hey, you want to hang out on Friday night? <laughs> Are you asking me on a date? Ooh! I don't know. <laughs> Airs out my turtleneck. <laughs> oh, that turtleneck. I know. Um, but, um, so... So, like, that's where they do their covert stuff. Um, it's a really, really nice type of day. Um, and then 
there's like kind of interesting, this is where Lauren and Ashley see them hanging out with Jean-Paul. So Ashley adds Violet on Facebook and she decides to add her back, um, which is really funny because Phoebe's like, did you add her? Violet's like, no. And Phoebe's <laughs> like, you realize I can check your friend list. <laughs> <laughs> you are so dumb. <laughs> and it's really funny. And then, then like any middle school, which I guess, I guess this is also in Canadian schools, like it introduces this subplot of like the Sadie Hawkins dance and like this discussion, like Phoebe's going to ask this boy out, Andrew, who we only really meet in like stories. Like he like did a report on Scottish people yeah. <laughs> and that's all we really know about him. And like they don't, they sit around like, who was Sadie Hawkins? Like, I don't know, somebody who couldn't get a date, I guess. <laughs> which is really funny. Um, and then of course the conversation is like, ooh, are you going to ask Jean-Paul? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's just like a lot of that type of stuff. Um, and then Isabel gets bitten by Rosie again. Um, and the reason why Rosie explains it and the story is heartbreaking because um, she tells the daycare worker and, uh, and Violet, um, we were playing house and Isabel said I couldn't have a daddy doll because I don't have a daddy at home. And I said, we do have a daddy. He just doesn't live with us. And she said that meant we don't have a daddy. So I bit her. Rosie, you, like, I feel you were constantly justified in biting Isabel. Right? Like, I feel like, like, chomp her, like, chomp her arm off. Like, she is legitimately a horrible little kid. Alright, I actually just, for, I've never looked this up before, but I just found out the history of the Sadie Hawkins dance. Oh, you did? Please. Yeah. The Sadie Hawkins dance is named after the little Abner comic strip character Sadie Hawkins, created by cartoonist Al Cap. In the strip, Sadie Hawkins Day fell on a given day in November, Kepner specified an exact date. The unmarried women of Dogpatch got to chase the bachelors and marry up with the ones that they called. The event was introduced in a daily strip which ran on November 15, 1937. Unlike traditional dances where the men chase the women, this empowers women to chase after what they want and not just to wait for it to walk their way. What the frick? Huh. <laughs> like, I don't like the idea of people chasing each other and marrying up, but... Uh, that last sentence was okay, I guess. I'm just like, you know, go for that gold ring. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway. So problematic dance. Let's just yeah, go with that. <laughs> let's just go with that. Anyway, so that's happening. Um, and of course, throughout this story, people are trying to get Violet to apologize for her having her half-sisters eat the cat turds. Um, and her dad tries to talk to her. Um, Violet literally says to Rosie, tell him she's, I'm not here. Like, right next <laughs> to the phone. Another time she answers by just using the magic eight ball. And, like, halfway through the conversation, her dad's like, are you talking to me through a magic eight ball? <laughs> what are you doing? Um, and then Jenica calls, even, um, trying to ask, like, you know, trying to reach out to her, trying to reach out to her. Um, this is interesting because she mentions that her father is working on a pilot, um, and is that the Tantamount lot? Were they just not allowed to say Paramount? Probably. Which is very interesting because they can say a lot of other things, but I guess Paramount Pictures is like, you can't use our name. Yeah. Keep us out of it. Yeah. Which is interesting. Um, so, like, that's happening, um, and Jenica's like, you know, please just apologize, and Violet just straight up hangs up on like, hangs up on her. I give Jenica credit for trying. <laughs> Me too. I mean, I think the thing with Jenica, Jenica ends up in that kind of space that I think a lot of the 
adversary love interest ends up in these types of stories, regardless of if divorce is not or not is included, where it's like, while she was complicit in the cheating, ultimately, I, I can't really hate her. I think that she is trying to make amends in her own way. She doesn't hate the kids in the other relationship. Um, she doesn't always read them very well, but I do think that there is a part of her that understands that if she wants to be with him, she needs to figure out a connection with them. Yeah. And I respect her attempts at reaching out, and I respect her attempts at reaching out in a different way. Yeah. Like, she understands that what her father is doing is not the way to reach out to her, so she's going to give it a shot her own way. Yeah. And I appreciate that for her. Um, and I feel, and this is also really upsetting because Rosie really wants to visit her father for March break. But once again, Rosie's too young and it literally, the ball is in Violet's court. She has to apologize for them to be able to go. So Rosie's like, you know, did you apologize? Like, you know, is it happening? And Violet's just like, side point to no. This is also the first time that like Violet really just kind of loses her temper with Rosie. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's really, really sad. Um, it's it's really hard. Um, and then, you know, um, the mother tries to confront this whole entire issue with Rosie, with the daycare. Um, and she's actually very, very kind to Rosie. She says, I'm not happy that you keep biting this girl, Rosie, but I also understand that they're not getting both sides of the story. Honestly, these people are supposed to be trained in early childhood education. <laughs> which is <laughs> relatable. Sounds like a spike line. Right? Like, I felt it. Um, and then it becomes one of these things um, where they they have a conversation about how Violet needs to apologize. Um, and Violet does the la 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 sticking her, ear, hand, her fingers in her ear thing. And she even says, it was not the most mature reaction in the world, but really, I wasn't going to listen to my mom as she tried to reinvent history. And there's this interesting moment that I think happens when relationships fall apart, where is like there's multiple narratives and multiple perspectives, but different perceptions on what the truth is. And this is where Violet begins to think like, I characterize that relationship as so great and so strong and suddenly dad screwed up. Maybe that wasn't the truth. Yeah. And maybe they weren't happy. And it's a very interesting and complex moment because, like, there isn't really a right answer when we talk about divorce in this way. Um, but it's very interesting to see this arc happening with her. And once again, I think this speaks to Nielsen's strength as a writer, where you have this very complex take on divorce and how it impacts people in a way that I think that not every author is able to nail. Yeah. Um, so... So the story just kind of keeps going. Um, there is, this is where they, um, they officially get the form letter. Um, and it's just kind of like this big blow to the ego. Um, Phoebe's really understanding. She's like, you know what? Like, we'll strategize tomorrow. We'll come up with something better. Um, and it's, it's a very, very, you know, it's just, once again, she's a very supportive friend. Um... And this is where Dudley comes over for girls' night. They watch Fantastic Mr. Fox, which... <laughs> features George Clooney. Yeah, features George Clooney. 
uh, as a critter, but still. Um, this is where <laughs> Dudley, like, finds out about the George Clooney thing. Um, and he, he responds really cute. He's just like, George Clooney has good taste, <laughs> which is really cute. I understand why a 12-year-old wants to gag, but as a 27-year-old, I think it's adorable. Uh, <laughs> Dudley, you have a really respectable game. <laughs> Yeah, but, um, of course, the traumatic experience at 3 a.m. happens, which is that, um, Violet goes to frickin' Ralph, um, and then sees a mostly naked Dudley Wiener. Um, Biku. (laughs) So, (laughs) because of his name, that came out a bit off. It did. He, he, she does not see Dudley's Wiener. Yeah. (laughs) God dang this name. <laughs> um, however, she sees him, you know, in his underwear and... Dudley says, like, I am so sorry. Yeah, because, like, it's not established. Um, Mom's just straight up like, I should have told you he might stay over. And it's just, it's traumatic. Um, and it's bad. Um, and I feel bad for everybody involved. Uh... <laughs> Dudley, yo, just a pair of shorts, my dude. <laughs> yeah, it's just, ooh. Um, and, and you know, it's one of those things where, ugh, it's just like they're trying to kind of work through it. Um, and, ugh, ugh, it's pretty traumatic. Um, and it's interesting because what ends up happening is Violet sleeps in and Violet realizes that the doorbell, which never works, is now fixed. Yeah. And it's revealed that Dudley fixed it. Yeah. And um, it's actually very, very traumatic to her. Um, because she... In, it's, it's eventually revealed, like, she feels so upset that Dudley is just kind of swinging in and fixing stuff. Um, because in, to her, that should be her father's job. Yeah. And even though this is, you know, as an older, you know, older or even as like her mother, you can be like, oh, wow, this is so great. I found a boyfriend who is willing to help around the house. I found a boyfriend who's competent enough to help around the house. (laughs) These are spaces to Violet that he should not go into. Yeah. And I think um, Phoebe makes this point to her. Yes, Phoebe does. Um, And so in the midst of all of this... um, Violet sends another letter to George Clooney. She reiterates that um, you need to read your own letters. Also, whoever is your agent, um, (laughs) please give him autonomy. This is not fair. This is offensive. Um, And then writes a letter, um, writes basically two letters, and then also attaches the letter that she sent originally um, and sends it out in hopes, and then also plans out a new stakeout. and this one, Jean-Paul is with already, like, automatically. Yeah. Um, and this one, everything seems to run pretty okay until the twist of it all, which is Jean-Paul is in there when he hears Dudley make a phone call. And the phone call is that Dudley is going to see his wife. For the record, I hate this part. <laughs> I hate this part, too. Um, I feel that... I like the first, I feel like I like the first half of this book better than I like the second half. Yeah. The second half gets very formulaic in a way that feels like the way Degrassi episodes tie up. Yeah. It It's very infuriating. So, like, obviously Violet calls a big fucking scene about this. 
Everybody's coming over for dinner. Phoebe's like, be cool. <laughs> Karen, Amanda, um, Dudley, and the mom, obviously. Um, and then, like, at the dinner table, uh, Violet. Um, oh, I got the quote highlighted. Oh, my God. So they're at the party. Um, um, it was just kind of like... Oh, there's also, like, Amanda. Is this where Amanda... Yeah, Amanda and Cosmo reveal that they're engaged. Mm-hmm. Like, um, Violet was a little nervous because it looked like their relationship was on the rocks, but it turned out it was just Cosmo was hiding the fact that he was buying an engagement ring. Yeah. They're engaged. They're super happy. And this is the way that Violet slips in this whole entire situation with Dudley, which is, she goes, kind of funny when you think about it. I heard myself saying, you two are getting married. Mom was married. Dudley is married. (laughs) And all hell breaks loose because Dudley just goes, my wife is dead, Violet. I go to visit her gravesite once a month. (sighs) (laughs) And so, like, all the dorky sweaters that he wears, he reveals were made by her. It hurts. Yeah. It hurts. Yeah. (laughs) And, like... It's really painful. To her credit, Violet realizes what a social taboo or what a social faux pas she has just performed. Yeah, and Phoebe Phoebe calls her out on it. Once again, there's this reoccurring thing where Phoebe is not afraid to call her out, which I really appreciate. And Phoebe's like, yo, you fucked up. Like, (laughs) this was your idea, subtle. You fucked up. And then she goes, like, at one point she goes, so maybe Dudley makes her happy. I mean, now that I've seen him and your mom together, he's not a bad guy. He's easygoing. He's funny in a dorky, old-fashioned kind of way. And he's almost cute if you look at him in the right light. (laughs) I feel like Phoebe has a stand, and her stand is Manny Santos. <laughs> like, like, instead of just punching a thousand times, it's just, like, throwing good points at Violet. Exactly, that's her stand's ability. <laughs> and then Violet just kind of does the the slamming her hands over her ears and yelling la-la-la-la-la. Um, and then, like, you know, Violet's like, you're supposed to be my best friend. And Phoebe's like, I am your best friend. Would you rather I be like Lauren and just say whatever you want to hear? Which also really infuriates me about the sidekick comment because it's very obvious that the way that Phoebe functions in their relationship is not a sidekick. Yeah. She calls her out. Like, if she feels that Violet is going too far, she will say it. But Phoebe perceives herself as a sidekick. And it's very upsetting to me. Yeah, like... You're the brains of this outfit, Phoebe. Yep. (laughs) Um, but I I actually remember reading a post somebody did about, like, it was a father, like, he's talking about dad jokes, mm-hmm. and he's just like, look, like, yeah, I know dad jokes are, like, lame, and they're, like, easy puns and whatever, but, like, I can't make dirty jokes, because, like, I'm talking to my kids, mm-hmm. I can't be sarcastic, because that, I could end up hurting their feelings. Especially when you have a five-year-old in the equation, they don't know sarcasm yet. Yeah, so what does that leave me with? Like, you know, observational humor kind of might go over their heads, and also could lean into, like, being kind of dirty, so, like, I'm, what am I left with? I'm left with puns, and just, like, knock-knock jokes and whatnot, and... It's good, clean fun. Yeah, like, but, once again... 
Dudley making it out like he could be a really good dad if need be. Well, that's the thing also because after what happens, like they kind of let her just kind of sleep in and um, her mom leaves a note. She signs it, love mom, which is a really good reassurance for Violet. Um, and then Dudley actually tries to talk to her. Um, he really, comes back. I did like this scene. Yeah, it was really good because like he says, like, I'm not angry at you. Like, or the fact that you've been spying on me. So he calls her out. He's straight up like, yeah, no, I knew Phoebe was, was the one in the store. I'm aware. Um, I went on my lunch break and I saw you hiding behind a newspaper box. Yeah, like, he was, like, very good on it. And and she just kind of snaps with, like, you know, a magic eight ball response. And it's, and, the, and even when her mom comes in, she kind of, like, fakes being asleep. Um... And her mom is just like, you know, like she says something like, it's a good thing um, because if she was awake, I'd have to kill her. (laughs) And then Rosie just goes, not really though, right? And then she goes, right. (laughs) And there's this very, it's just like, her mom, like I'm very sympathetic to her mom. I I don't know if I would have been when I was 12, Mm -hmm. but reading this at my age, I'm so sympathetic to her and what she's going through and how she has a very difficult 12 year old on her hands. Yeah. But she still loves her deeply. Yes. And it's it's very beautiful in that way. Is this the point where it's revealed that Dudley asked the mom to marry him? Um, uh, not just yet, but it does happen. And we can just kind of catch up to that. So, like, things are actually going kind of okay. Um, Rosie is not wetting the bed anymore. Yeah. Which is really, really big. She loves Dudley. And I don't think we've emphasized that enough. She loves him. Yeah. And, like, in some ways, Violet dismisses it as Rosie loves everybody. But it's not really that. Like, he's incredibly nice to her and compliments her. And he hangs on to, like, she hangs on to that very tightly. Like, mm-hmm. she feels validated by him. Yeah. And that's so important when you're that age. Um, and it's it's just, like, a really, really sweet thing. Um, so, uh, Violet goes back to school, tells Jean-Paul about the situation with the, with the wife, because so much happened that weekend, um, and it's just kind of one of those things where Ashley then reveals that she has found very risque photos of Violet's mother, um, and they're the ones that we mentioned earlier where she's partying and everything, and it's a big problem because it's like pictures of her kissing her ex and stuff like that she has a thong that's visible blah blah blah, blah, blah. um and violet freaking punches ashley talk shit get hit like, yeah yeah <laughs> we know the rule in jersey <laughs> right i'm like yeah yeah this is a conflict no i'm kidding in jersey it would still be addressed by by supervisors but <laughs> I was gonna say, like, yeah, but if you're on the street, like, you say a certain thing, you know a punch is coming. Yeah, like, you're running your mouth. Um, <laughs> like, don't be surprised. The mean streets of Vancouver. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a line from my, um, some, some, from some of my favorite Let's Players who, like, I felt like Violet could have just dropped that. I would be like, yep. Where it's just like, you're talking pretty big for somebody who's about to get punched. Yeah, like, that's what it felt, that's what it felt like. Um, and then, so Violet gets promptly, like, suspended. Because she breaks her nose, <laughs> which is, like, impressive. Like, at that point, like, if I was picking up my kid, I'd be like, I'm not, like, what? Really? You were able to do that? 
I felt like I had like at least one pickup from my mom that was just like, I'm not angry about this. I'm actually proud, but I had to pretend to be angry. I was a good kid who never had that happen to me, but like I feel like it's one of those, this would be a situation where you were like, huh, you're suspended for the rest of the week, but you were defending my honor. Um, and this is where she calls out on her, she calls her mom, um, and she says, you know, I punched her because she called you a skank. Um, and her mom explains like how it was a terrible time for her she was she straight up says i was depressed yeah which is really good to see in a book like she makes no metaphors or anything like that or says it's like she says it's a dark time but she straight up says i was depressed and i made stupid choices um and violet says that you know you're only into dudley because you're falling for him because you're desperate to have a man in your life um and this is where she reveals that dudley asked her to marry him yeah and she dating. just leaves. <laughs> They've been dating for, what, four or five months? Yeah, there's a lot of, like, time aspects of these relationships in general, and we'll get to the wedding thing as well, where everything just feels like it went fast and it was a little too convenient. Well, though, though I'm not gonna, I'm not hating on people who get married after four or five months. My parents got, my mom just kind of, about six months into their relationship, my mom's just like, look, Vic, we know where this is going, just, let's just, make this thing happen see i can't i'm i'm a very <laughs> slow going person who who has no wedding plans in sight in spite of being engaged so i am not someone to talk about this well they were like they, they were both older i think my mom was in her like like late 30s and this was back in the early late 70s early 80s so i felt like you know it was more expected back then yeah and it's also something to be argued here where it's like he he's asking her to get married and this is somebody who is a widower. Um, this is also... So it's like we have people who are a little older and maybe have experience and have both experienced marriage to a certain extent. And while there was trauma associated with their marriages, I'm sure both of them kind of see the benefits of marriage and the benefits of being together and the benefits of legitimating yourself in a legal sense. Yeah. So, so the acceleration can kind of be explained. Um, anyway, so in the process of all of this happening... Um, Violet is, um, you know, really upset and numb. And in the process, she finds a magazine that talks about how George Clooney is filming at Tantamount Studios, which is the same studios her father is recording. So she decides that she now is the time she's going to apologize to her father. And along with that apology, she apologizes to Phoebe. Yes. And Phoebe's just like, yo, girl, like... We've been friends since since kindergarten. Like, I'm not losing you just yet. Yeah. Um, which is really nice. And so they go to L.A. Um, and it's kind of interesting because we see Jenica in a softer light of sorts. Yeah. In the sense that we see how she's trying to extend this olive branch to them. Where um, she gets them, like, she gets them clothes. She gets... Um, she gets Violet a bathing suit and it doesn't really fit her, but instead of her being really mean about it or rude about it, she's just like, it's fine. We'll find something that suits you better. Like, we'll find something super cute for you. She compliments um, Violet's legs. She's like, you got legs for days. And it's, you know, for someone that Violet holds such bitterness toward, she views her legs from there on out as her strength. Which, like, <laughs> obviously, like, women are more than just their physical features, but... At the end of the day, we are still human, and yeah. I think that it's really important that somebody has something about them that they, like, can 
can um, negotiate with themselves and the person in the mirror and be like, yeah, okay, fine. I don't, you know, there's so much aspects of us that and being also a bespeckled brunette kid in middle school, like, I understand, like, kind of feeling like garbage about yourself because you're not the blonde one and you're not the preppy one no matter what you do and it doesn't really fit you anyway. But to be able to look at yourself and go like, hey, I do have nice legs. You're right. It's nice. Yeah. It's it's important in certain ways. Once again, we can t- discourse about the other narrative going on about like, you know, you should be more than your physical features, but ultimately sometimes we need what gets us through the day. Yeah, but, and like, I was, uh, while we were talk- been talking about this, I've been thinking like, you know, um, Violet's at an age where she's going to start hitting, she's either started hitting puberty or is starting to hit puberty. Um, and like, she's going to become, I'm I'm assuming she's become very aware of her own body in, like, a way that, like, a kid doesn't. Yeah. So maybe that's why she's putting more focus on it. It's not explained that way in the book, but that might just be a subtext. Or, mm-hmm. like, what just what I'm reading into it. Um, so, um, like, Jenica takes her to a, um, like, takes her to an audition, and, like, Violet helps her run some lines, and... Yeah, Jenica's not a very good actress. <laughs> no. Um, it's also kind of interesting because amongst all of this, she also, like, Jenica is very guarded toward Violet in certain ways. Like, she's very kind to Violet, but she still doesn't fully trust her. And you can tell in the way that Violet, like, Violet really comes to terms with the fact that she doesn't hate the twins. And she legitimately just is crying and holding them. And it's like this very vulnerable moment. And it's very interesting because Jenica is still watching her and still doesn't fully trust her. Which, understandable. This is is a 12-year-old who fed your kid cat shit. Like... Like, this kid... Like, it's it's very... Like, I was just like... I feel like Jenna could be like, I saw the good son. Yeah, like, <laughs> oh my god. I just flash back to watching that movie. Oh, but, like, it's it's true. Like, she she's very suspicious, as she should be. Um, and But, like, she also doesn't want to kill the moment entirely. And... There's also... Yeah, but there's also a nice moment where Jenica kind of apologizes. Not really... Like, she doesn't really say the words, but she says, like, I never expected myself to be the other woman. Yeah. But I fell in love with, like, your dad, and... And the thing that's also really upsetting is Violet feels the need to kind of look out for her because she does not trust her father to not cheat ever again. Yeah. They have, like, she catches them having a tiff, which I found kind of interesting, which is kind of like the father being like, stop buying so many outfits and everything, and, her, and, her, and Jenica being like, well, I want to look nice for auditions, and I'm like, superstitious. And so, like, they have issues with each other and how he bought a Mercedes Benz, but she can't buy some outfits. I don't know what her budget is with these clothes, but still, like, they're they don't agree with expenses, and whenever a man tries to control a woman's expenses, I'm always very, like, like, yeah. I'm very on edge. Um, and they also acknowledge that she used to make more money than him, and now it's flipped, and there's tension relating to that. Um, and Violet can kind of see that this is not rosy sunshine, father ran away to something perfect. Jenica very well could become her mother. Yeah. And it's very, very upsetting. I think they're, like, I think with the Mercedes Benz, like, that's a, you know, a midlife crisis car. Mm hmm. Um, so I, I, that's the subtext I read in that also. 
Oh, 100%. Like, he is priming himself for wife number three. Wife number three and kid number who knows how many. I'm just gonna borrow this line from a garbage movie. Borrowing it from Fight Club. Fucker seven of franchise. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Oh. But, um, so, during all of this, Violet schemes her way into going to Tantamount Studios... Twice. Twice. It's true. Because they do, they do stop by, and this is where we get the hint that, like, because, like, they see an actress was putting her hand on her, on Violet's father's arm, and Mm -hmm. just leaving it there for a long time, and Jenica, like, you know, gets her ire up about this, as she should, because we know that guy's a scumbag. Yep. It's, it's, oof, it's really rough. Um, and then she's able to get to the lot and she's like, I need to see George Clooney. So George Clooney is in lot nine and her dad's filming in lot 18. And the quickest way to get there is by taking a golf cart. She's 12. She gets the brilliant (laughs) idea that she's going to steal a golf cart and drive. And this part's actually really funny to me because she steals the golf cart successfully. But she ends up having no sense of direction and literally could have walked and ended up and she acknowledges it she's like yeah like i drove so much it was like a five minute drive but it took like 15 minutes i could have walked anyway and it was really funny to me and then what ends up happening is she hits what is revealed as george clooney's car (laughs) and she wakes up in the infirmary of the studio and she's like this is the kid and like george clooney is standing over her And then he's like, this is the girl, this is the kid who hit my car. Yeah, like, it's actually a really funny exchange. Of course, at this point in the story, at least I was sitting there going, is this reality? Is this a hallucination? I don't fucking know. But the exchange is kind of endearing. Um, And then, like, she kind of reveals some of her issues. Yeah. It reveals that, like, you know, maybe Violet should be talking to a therapist, not George Clooney. And and to give... (laughs) Her mom credit, she was in therapy for quite a while. Yeah. And then she got taken out of it for, I forget exactly what the reason was. She yeah. was in therapy at one point. Um, so it does kind of reiterate, maybe she should go back. Um, and yeah, I'm, not, I'm trying to denigrate therapy. Like, no, I'm no, no, no. I'm a big supporter of it that I think would fairly much help Violet. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, I just wanted to make sure the mom didn't get shit on for not looking into that option. Yeah, but like, just like, the way she's just... Uh, like the, the the line just like George Clooney's like kid like the world doesn't work this way yeah I am not the Marion kind yeah exactly he's just like yo like whatever I know myself and like I know I don't want to get married and you need to just you know he says like does this wiener guy make your mom happy and she goes it would seem so yes and then he just goes so maybe you need to give him a chance yeah it does, um, you know what it reminds me of? There's a part in 30 Rock where Liz Lemon talks to Buzz Aldrin. Right, and yeah. And, like, he, even he's like, yeah, no, that, that wouldn't be good to marry your mom. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, one of those, just one of those moments. Um, and then, so, like, that exchange happens, like, she wakes up again, um, she... Um, Jenica is there and she's just like, I'm just glad you're okay. And it's actually very sweet. Um, cause she, they want to make sure she isn't concussed. So they have to kind of wake her up every hour to kind of yeah. make sure that she's not, 
getting worse or anything like that. Um, and Janica takes that on, which is a lot, considering this is a kid who fed your twins shit. So, like, this is very kind. Um, And then they confirm that she does hit George Clooney's car. Um, There is some, like, contradictions revealed. Like, she's, like, he's like, you know, don't be ridiculous. You didn't meet George Clooney. Like, you know, he and Dad tries to point out some holes in the um, story that Violet tells about talking to George Clooney. Um... She gets, like, she she's pretty okay. I mean, she gets super, like, road rash, like, all down one side of her body. But she's doing pretty okay, all things considered. Yeah, let's just, like, maybe, like let's just point out how bad this crash is. She rolls the cart. Yeah, like, it falls on her. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Because, like, I know, Donnie, if you saw the first Jackass movie, where this little, this thing literally happens, and it's, like... One of the scariest parts of the movie because I was like, "Don't move his neck! Don't move his neck! Oh yeah. God!" Yeah, like I, I'm, I, I don't even know. I just saw the Jackass movie. I just know from like first aid training. Like anytime something like this happens, it's like, <laughs> it's like don't move unless like you are a medical professional. Yeah. Just, just sit there. Basically, like you gotta sit on your hands because yeah. you can't touch that person. Like it's a very scary and potentially traumatic experience. She ends up pretty okay. Like she still gets screwed up. And, like, she hurts, and she has, when she goes to school, she's just covered in scabs, basically. Um, but, oof. Um, anyway, so, like, after the whole entire thing happens, um, there's, like, this weird flashback, flash-forward thing, because, um, it's June, there's a wedding happening, which is a very fast wedding. Um, it kind of does that very obvious bait-and-switch you're supposed to believe that maybe it's, it's her mom's wedding, it's actually Amanda and Cosmo's wedding. Um, they... Mom and Dudley are going to hold off on the wedding aspect for right now. Um, um, so, like, they're, you know, it's like the wedding thing. Um, Dudley has taken the time while uh, Violet has been away to fix just about everything that's broken in the house. Yeah, yeah. And the mom is, you know, happy that she's okay. Um, and says, like, you know, I told him no. Um, but know that he makes me happy, and she makes a very distinct point to Violet. She says he makes me happier in some ways than your dad ever did. Seems like because Dudley seems like an upstanding dude. Violet's dad's a human piece of garbage. Right. <laughs> but I really love this line. I, there's actually a lot of lines I like about this book. This is why I quote it so much, because I feel like the book says yeah. it so much better than I do. Um, and when she's talking to to Violet, she says, I love you and Rosie with all my heart but I need a different kind of love too. Just like you'll need a different kind of love when you get older, something Rosie and I won't be able to provide. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful sentiment to explain to a kid, to be like, and I like that it's a little ambiguous. I, you know, I think it's very easy to read a romantic love in that context, but I think it also speaks to, like, you know, you need more than just your family. And whether that's friends or whether that's romantic partners or whether that's, like, you know, some sort of queer platonic type of situation, like, you need people in your life that aren't just your immediate family because you have needs and you have relationship dynamics that need to be different. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful. Like, I really, truly think that's a beautiful sentiment. Um, I'm nodding pathetically. (laughs) Yeah. Um... So, so also Violet does some self-reflection. She acknowledges that George Clooney was the perfect guy for her mom because she knew deep in her heart that, um, it was an impossible goal. Um, 
Phoebe is, you know, just very supportive, and um, Violet does what she can to kind of make amends. Um, she apologizes to Ashley, and Ashley and, and her friend Lauren are still pretty pissed off. Um, she sees Jean-Paul, um, and they kind of talk to each other, because apparently the Sadie Hawkins dance happens, well, not apparently, it does. The Sadie Hawkins dance happens while she's suspended. Jean-Paul does not go, even though Ashley asked him to. Um, and they kind of do, like, a kind of, like, a check-in with each other, um, and... Didn't, he specifically didn't go with her because I, he heard about what Ashley did. Yeah, and and because Jean Paul is a good boy. That's a Sean move, <laughs> right? That's such a Sean move. <laughs> um, and also, much like Sean, he goes, "I was wondering if maybe this weekend we could do something like see a movie or something. We could ask Phoebe and Andrew to come too." <laughs> I guess it's a little more overt than Sean. <laughs> I twelve-year-old boys. They're not the smooth boss operators. Like, no. Sean and John Paul have their moments, but they're still just 12-year-old boys. Yeah, and, and what I like about it is, like, they're kind of dating. Like, she describes it as sort of kind of dating, but they're not dating dating in, like, yeah. that unrealistic way that people portray middle school relationships. Yeah. Um, but he goes to, like, the girls' night, movie nights and stuff like that. And it's kind of cute because, you know, it's kind of funny because Dudley's also there. It's not really girls' night anymore, but it's still nice and welcoming. Yeah. And they still watch George Clooney movies, and <laughs> a lot of those traditions are kept. Um, and it's very, very sweet. And, um, you know, they talk about the wedding, and it's beautiful, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Y'all have read weddings. I find writing, by the way, fun writer fact, I find writing weddings incredibly boring. I find every, because like the, I, I feel the same because the only thing I like about weddings is the dancing and it's kind of hard to write people having fun dancing. Right. <laughs> but, um, so like, you know, that all happens, blah, blah, blah. And then the little zinger at the end is Violet gets a letter back from George Clooney's office um, the filler letter is given, but when she checks the headshot, there's a very sweet little message which says to Violet, a better daughter than she is a driver, best wishes, George Clooney. <laughs> which, from what I know of George Clooney, I feel like he would put. It felt in character. Yeah. This is very good George Clooney fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... All right, I'm not going to do ratings for these people. No, no, no. I mean, I guess um, I was thinking about it because I'll definitely put up a review on Goodreads, which I guess I can link to when we post this episode. Yeah. Um, I feel like I would give it a solid three and a half stars um, out of five. I think there are very strong moments of writing in this. I think that Susan Nielsen's a great writer. I, yeah. I truly feel that reading this, and I'm very intrigued to read her other middle grade work because it seems like she's very, very smart as a yeah. writer, and she does really good things. However, um, there are aspects of this that I hesitate to just straight up recommend. I feel like there are a couple caveats that I have to give, and unfortunately that lowers my rating a little bit because I feel like if I recommend a five-star book, I should be able to recommend it and only be able to say, oh, I loved it because of this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have to explain away some of the issues with it. And I feel like, ultimately, the gripes that I have with it are a bit glaring. And also, the second half is super formulaic. Yeah. Yeah, I feel it, it rests very well in B-plus area. Yeah. 
not not a masterpiece, but not terrible either. Exactly. So, like, if you know someone in your life who is middle grade age, I think that it's something that, much like what Frank said, you could definitely read it, but make sure that you do some, you know, discussion afterwards to make sure they understand that while Violet's behavior um, is valid in many ways, it doesn't make it right. Yeah. And, you know, her comments toward women's bodies are inappropriate. If you do that, because once again, like, everyone, she considers people beautiful in the wedding because they're not wearing as much makeup or they're covering up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not because she goes, oh, I shouldn't rag on how people look because that's really mean. Yeah. And so, like, I think it's really important to have that kind of conversation. Um, but I do, once again, think that there was amazing moments of writing in this book. I, I'm very impressed with the way that she understands how complicated people are at all ages. It's a, it's a very well done book. Yeah. I, I, I feel like you summed it up just perfectly. So. Thanks. I read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so it's a very interesting read. I'm glad that we did it. It kind of gets, it gets me excited for season two in certain ways, but it also reminds me how fun it is to kind of see somebody write in a different way. Yeah. Um, recommendations? Sure. Um, I don't have anything specifically to recommend that's similar to this one as I don't read very much middle grade and I didn't really feel comfortable doing a recommendation when I just haven't read very much. Um, it did make me kind of want to revisit Sharon Creech's work because I really loved her work when I was growing up and I know that she handled a lot of like families in turmoil type stuff. Um, so it might be worth revisiting her stuff if you were somebody who enjoyed her books growing up. Um, but I will give a recommendation of an actual thing that I like, which is not related to this, and I can't really think of a way to find a relation, um, but I just saw Sorry to Bother You, finally, and it was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, it was wild and interesting. Um, it's gorgeous to look at. The music is brilliant and the story itself is also amazing. Um, if you have not seen this, definitely don't judge it on just the trailer. There's a lot more going on, but try your best to go into this movie which, with as little spoilers as possible. So just go see it. Like, don't listen to any, like, don't even ask people what it's about. Um, don't look at even the genre tags on it. Like, try to go in with as little information as possible, um, because it, it will push you to pull certain aspects of the story at a level that you may not have pulled if you already knew what was going on. Um, I loved it. It was absolutely wonderful. So if you get the chance or, you know, I understand this episode's going to be a little late. It might not be in theaters by the time it comes up. Please do what you can to check this out. Yeah. And on that um, note, let me recommend the Bo Burnham movie, uh, Eighth Grade. Um, this movie, like, it, it, it was so realistic and just so heartbreakingly beautiful. Um, like, it's, it reminds me a lot of this book where he doesn't flinch away from the awkwardness and the, like, the shyness that, like, an eighth grade girl might feel. Um, and, like, there's parts of it that, like... I, like, I came, I, I cried through a fair portion of it, but, like, you know, it was a good cry. Like, because it, it was just, it was well-earned. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't, mm -hmm. like, anything like that. 
Um, it has an R rating for language um, and some adult situations. But if you have a kid that's this age, like going into eighth grade or um, going into high school, see it with them. Like, it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful movie. Aren't they running some unrated showings of it, too? Like, that's how passionate they are about, like, eighth graders being able to see it. Like, they're doing free screenings, and I think that they don't have the rating requirement for them. Yeah. Which I think is very interesting. Like, that's how passionate this crew is about making sure this age group sees it. Yeah. I mean, like, ever, like Elsie Fisher... Like, I felt like, watching her, I felt the same way I felt watching Haley Steinfeld in um, um, True Grit, where I'm just like, this girl's gonna be, like, this is girl somebody to watch. I want to see, like, her next, her next role. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's wonderfully written. All the characters are just so realistic, and it's just great. It's a great movie. I cannot believe it's Bob Winner's first movie. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, it's like, well, also with Sorry to Bother You, it's Boots Riley's first movie. Um, he wrote it and directed it, and, like, it's so masterful. I mean, he's he's an artist. He's a, he's a musician and everything. Like, he has experience in arts, but, like, when you look at how beautiful that movie is and how it's a full experience... It, you you are just like wow really like <laughs> first time out of the gate damn and this also has nothing to do with what we've been talking about but like because they're coming out at the same time and they'll probably be coming to dvd or like streaming streaming at the same time my sister has seen blind spotting three times uh she highly recommends that movie as well good to know i haven't seen it yet but that's good to know so um, anyway, so next week we're going back to our usual format. We are going to be kicking it off with a bang with a double episode spectacular for season two. Um, get excited. A lot of really, really big characters are coming in. Um, we have a lot of guests who are interested in appearing. However, we are always open to make room for you. So if you are interested in making a guest appearance on our, on an episode, please email us at ihopepod at gmail.com. Um, like I said, we actually have a lot of people who are interested. It's an honor. Um, but if you are somebody who wants to appear on a specific episode or you would like to appear on a character, like, you know, on an A plot that is about a character, let us know and we can definitely either add you to the list or move some guests around to make sure that you get on a special spot. If you want to contribute some really important thoughts about how an episode impacted you or how a character impacted you, whether it's from episodes we've already watched or episodes that are coming up, please make sure you also email us either with an audio file or with some sort of text. We would love to read it. Um, Frank, cover your ears, although you're editing this, so I don't really know. Um, whatever. Uh, this especially goes, especially with characters like Marco and Ellie, which means so much to people. Please, please make sure that you send us your thoughts, because I know these characters mean so much to so many people. Okay, Frank, you can cover your ears. Um, sorry. I, this, this was useless, because he edits this. Um... <laughs> Anyway, if you would like to ask us any questions, you can also email us. However, you can also tweet us at IHopePod. You can go meet, talk to us on Tumblr at IHopePod. Um, or you can also join our Facebook group, which is I Hope I Can Make It Through a Podcast. Um, if you would like to talk to me individually, I am at DM is Unbreakable. People are actually DMing me with hot Degrassi takes on there because I've seen the entire series, so I can go into more spoiler territory that way. Um, so definitely feel free to tweet me because I love hearing your Degrassi thoughts. 
I'm at Stuck Dancing. Um, I just got called the fuck out this morning um, by Donnie, who tweeted, we... tweeted at me, I've been doing a podcast with at Stuck Dancing for 15 weeks, and I still haven't gotten a follow back. And I'm like, oh, I don't use Twitter that much. It was kind of funny. I was actually very impressed you just followed back promptly. It's good to know. <laughs> hey, I'm try- I take good advice when I say it. Thank um, you. But, like, but also, that's a fair point. And I did find it very funny this morning. It was. It, it was It was there. Um, but in all seriousness, um, thank you for following us through this slightly different format. Um, as always, we hope we can make it through, and we hope that you're going to be there with us. Yep. See you all next week. See ya. Bye.